because at the end of the day, like the relationships that matter the most to me, the people don't care that I'm a like a consultant to PCG. The people don't care that I'm doing investment banking at Morgan Stanley. The people care that like I'm a kind person to them and they enjoy being around me. Like that's why they're there for me. So for everybody that is over indexing on the professional stuff, realize that like that takes a toll on your relationships because they don't care about that prestigious transaction that you just closed. They care that you're spending time with them and that you're a good person to them. And no amount of professional prestige is going to make up for the fact that you don't give the people who are important to you that you're not spending time with them. Everyone is a stranger until you know their story. The Power of Good Intentions is a show about people, their stories, challenges they faced, and how they overcame them. This show is here to remind you that there is always a path forward and that good things happen to people who have a good heart. I am Aliu Sidibe and I am your host. Hey, it's Aliu. And I just want to take a moment to say how much I appreciate you for listening to the show. If you find the podcast inspiring, interesting, motivating, or heartwarming, if there is one person, maybe a friend or family member who you think will appreciate the show, please take a moment and share it with them because sharing is caring and good stories are meant to be shared. Marcus Aurelius said, the more we value things outside our control, the less control we have. With this comes the understanding that we should use our energy to focus on what we can control and let the rest take care of itself. With today's guest, Tristan Francis, we talk about this concept a lot. The concept of choosing what you want to do and doing what you choose to do without thinking about anything outside of that. As an 11-year-old who had to leave his family in New York to go to boarding school, Tristan faced a crossroad which defined the rest of his life. After crying himself to bed for many nights, dealing with insecurities, and not understanding why his environment had suddenly changed, he came to the understanding that the only thing you can control in life is how you react to events. He did not know what life was going to throw next, but he knew what he was going to do when that happened. And with this principle in mind and a few others that we talk about, he went on to create the life he wanted for himself. Today, Tristan has achieved all types of professional success. He went to some of the top schools in the world and he also worked for some of the top companies in the world. But he also reminds us that at the end of the day, what truly matters in life is the relationships you build with the people you care about. Thank you so much, Tristan, for being with me today on the podcast. No problem at all. Definitely my pleasure and looking forward to it. So first thing I wanted to ask you is how are you doing? Because I know that, you know, the world is kind of going crazy now with coronavirus and all that. How is everything going in Singapore and how is everything in your own life? Yeah, so things in Singapore in terms of the virus, I think that the response here has been pretty good. It's been pretty thorough. Um, so I think that uh, relative to what I'm reading about in terms of what's happening in some other countries, I feel like although it's a crazy time in the world, I actually feel 
fortunate to be in Singapore because I think that as far as uh, responses go from that perspective, I, I think I feel safer in Singapore than I would feel in any other country is, is I guess what I would say. So I, I would say I'm probably more concerned for friends and family in, in the States uh, oh. during the difficult time than I am in terms of, of Singapore, which I think that as far as any country goes, has, has a pretty good hold on it. So, and then outside of that, things have been going well. I've been living in Singapore now for about seven months and uh, really loving it here. Um, so yeah, everything has been been positive for the most part. I'm glad to hear that. And yeah, like I, I have a few friends who are talking about Singapore and how everything is just so organized. The city is clean and, you know, everything is nicer. So I, I'm glad that you feel safe because here in the U.S. is a bit of a different story. But yeah. So first of all, uh, thank you for being here today, as I said before. And I've heard so many great things about the things that you do. We haven't had the chance to meet in person, but I, I've had a few friends telling me about the type of workshops you were holding when you were here in New York and things like that and the impact that you've had on people. So it made me want to reach out to you, especially to kind of really understand, you know, who is Tristan Francis and the the, the core principles that help you be who you are. I, I want you to first take us to your early childhood growing up in Queens, New York. What was the environment like? And what were some of the early beliefs that you had in life? So I think that early on, I think that, so my environment growing up, I grew up in Queens, uh, had two older brothers. The way that I would kind of describe our situation, I think our family didn't have a lot of like discretionary spend, so to say, um, but you know, we always had our basic necessities. That being said, kind of, uh, my mom was working, my dad was staying at home and taking care of my, my brothers and I. Um, my mom was kind of on, constantly working in order to make end, ends meet. So I think that there's probably an early um, viewing of, of just work ethic that was probably in there. And then uh, another thing that I'd say in terms of a very early childhood view is you know, as hard as my mom was working, she always did make sure that my brothers and I never kind of forgot to have fun, so to say. So I think that honestly, the reality is how much you feel like you have is a very relative thing. Growing up in Queens, I never really felt like I didn't have much, but I think that as I've moved on to other environments in life, as I went on to kind of boarding school in Massachusetts, as I've gone on to like prestigious universities, prestigious business schools, that's when I've started to realize like, oh, wow, okay, like my family didn't really have much growing up. Um, but, you know, I never really felt that way when I was growing up in Queens. So I, I would describe my childhood as uh, up until age 11. For me, I, I think uh, life was simple and life kind of felt like, you know, make sure that you have fun, make sure that you're treating people well. So I'd say that between up until age 11, that was kind of my guiding set of values. And then at age 11, I had a very big transition and that I went from public school to private school. Mm -hmm. There's an organization in New York called Prep for Prep that takes high achieving students and places them in competitive schools, including boarding schools in some cases. Um, and I was not a high achieving student early on. I was always on the, the verge of being held back when I was in New York City. My older brother 
I have two older brothers. The middle brother uh, was always in like the New York City towns in a gifted program. So he got into this program in prep for prep, then got placed into this boarding school in Massachusetts. And my mom went straight to the boarding school and said, the older brother's here. He's doing well. Can you take Tristan also? And the boarding school took me. But once I went to this boarding school, I had a really difficult time. So I think that age 11 was probably the year of greatest insecurity in my life. I was kind of crying myself to sleep every single night. I wanted to go back to New York. I didn't feel smart enough to speak up in the classroom. I didn't feel kind of cultured enough to speak up in social settings. It was a very difficult. It was a very difficult year for me. Um, the fact that your uh, older brother was with you, was that helping you though? Or? Uh, not particularly, um, because I think that uh, at that point in time, a lot of my insecurity stemmed from a relative comparison, meaning my oldest brother, you know, things seemed to come easily to him academically. Um, and he worked hard for sure, no doubt about it, especially when he was doing that prep for prep program. He was working incredibly hard on, on the weekends and in the summertime when you know, everybody else was just kind of playing games and sports and stuff like that. He was he was studying. So it, it wasn't that he wasn't studying, but it was that he you know was never kind of struggling in the way that I was struggling. Um, and, you know, I'm very close with my middle brother, but I, I've talked to him about kind of like our our childhood years. And I think that. Um, if anything, like I, we didn't have that kind of relationship as kids. We more had a relationship where he was my brother. So I didn't want to kind of uh, show weakness in his eyes. Um, and so we didn't really talk about that kind of stuff. But I do think that back to your question of values, that's probably where my first core value, which has at that point in time, after the way I like to think about it is I was in this boarding school kind of crying myself to sleep every single night but there's only so many mornings you can wake up with a headache before you realize like all right I have to do something to make my situation a little bit better and I think that uh, for me it was you know I can't change the fact that I grew up in a kind of lower socioeconomic background than my peers I can't change the fact you know, I was me and my brother would joke that we made up 30% of the black population at this boarding school. Um, <laughs> not that I would, would want to, but like, you know, there's some discomfort that changes that, that comes with that. But like, I wouldn't yeah. want to change kind of who I, who I am kind of thing either. Um, but the combination of these things, I realized that there's certain variables that you can change and then there's certain variables that you can't change. And it just makes sense to focus on the things that you can actually impact and move the lever on. And in my case, that was academics. Up yeah. until that point, I hadn't, you know, read a book until the seventh grade. So those were the levers that I could kind of change. So I started really buckling down and but focusing on my academics. How did you come to that conclusion? Because I guess when you're going through that where you're suffering academically and you're you're not really able to like achieve your potential, it's kind of hard to see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I know you also mentioned that uh, previously, uh, in exchange we've had you mentioned that you you had dyslexia so yes yeah having dyslexia being sent to massachusetts where you had to go to boarding school and you were kind of in a pretty competitive environment you know when all of this is happening i know now obviously with time you are able to understand that and what you're talking about but in the midst of all of it how did you overcome it what yes, so helped in- you come to that conclusion 
Yeah, so in the midst of all of this, and I didn't find out that I had dyslexia until the 10th grade. So at this point in time, when I was in, I was in boarding school in, Mass- in New Jersey at that point. So at this point in time in Massachusetts, I, I had no idea. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, when I did find, find out that I had dyslexia, whereas most people would view that as negative news, I actually found that as really positive news because up until that point, I just thought that I was unintelligent. And so for me, you know, this this thing, this notion of dyslexia, understanding that pe- some people just kind of learn differently and that like I can achieve better results if I just make some adjustments, that was actually more encouraging than discouraging um, news for me to, to for me to really find out. But at this point in time, I didn't know that. So in terms of and yes, to your point, I can certainly articulate it a lot better now that I'm reflecting on it. I think it was as simple as the motivation for me to to kind of get better was was really because I felt so insecure at that point in my life and I didn't feel smart enough to speak up in 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 a lot of different settings and so that was the underlying motivation it was really just let me get on par with my peers so that I don't have to go through an entire day like worried about speaking up because I don't feel intelligent enough to speak up. So it came out of a necessity of, uh, it, it came out of a, that necessity for me. I like it. And one thing that, one fact that I actually would like to bring up and one interesting read that I've seen the other day was the fact that three out of the six Shark Tank investors are dyslexic, which, and some of them actually give credit to the fact that they were dyslexic for being where they are today because they say that you know with dyslexia come other challenges you know the perception that your peers may have on you thinking that you're dumb or some of your professors not really believing in you and it seems like you know despite all of this going on when we look at your life you are someone who is not really afraid to like get out of your comfort zone and uh, that's something you started doing in high school. That's something you've been doing in college. And that's something you even do now in your professional life by, you know, leaving the country and going to work in Singapore. So what what is that one thing that pushes you to consistently make bold decisions and really get out of your comfort zone? Yeah, I think that... There have always been these periods in my life where I've been really uncomfortable and they've led to the greatest outcomes in my life. So I think the first one was certainly going to boarding school in Massachusetts. I don't think that I've ever been more uncomfortable in my life than that first year of boarding school where, you know, I kind of would make the comparison to you know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Will Smith showing up in Bel-Air, and it's just an entirely different world. It's probably the easiest reference point that I can make, but it, it led to tremendous, it led to tremendous growth for me. And so then I get to high school and, you know, I, I find out that I'm dyslexic and now I go through this uncomfortable period again where I have to redefine the way that I learn and, and I'm working with this learning coach and, you know, it's little things like making sure that I'm, you know, all of my books are on audio and I'm listening at the same time I'm reading. There's some tactics around how I highlight content using different colors that allows me to to digest the information a little bit more readily. So there's all these tips and tricks that were, were just a kind of entirely new to me. So, you know, high school in many ways was a little bit of an uncomfortable period, but it, it also led to a discovery that I loved 
to, to learn and I actually love to in, invest in myself and, and growing as a person. And so, you know, that was another period of, of discomfort, but, you know, good in a good way in terms of growth. And then I get to college and that's probably the biggest point where I realized the benefit of just, you know, putting myself out there because in, in middle school, uh, sorry, in that boarding school in Massachusetts and then boarding school in New Jersey, both of those schools, my older brother was there. But college was the first time where, you know, my older brother didn't go to Penn for college. He went to William and Mary. And so for me, going to Penn and going to Wharton, that was both of these were unchartered territory. And then I kind of so for the first time, I viewed them as a blank canvas. I didn't know what to expect, whereas the other schools, I had my brother there, so I knew a little bit about the school before going. So I showed up. It felt like a blank canvas. At this point, I knew that I was I had done a, a high school program that exposed me to kind of business and working in, in the business space. And so I kind of knew that I wanted to do business. I didn't know what exactly that meant. So I showed up to college kind of knowing that I wanted to do business, not really sure what that meant and realizing if I wanted to do business, it was going to be really important for me to be comfortable meeting and talking to people in a way that I was not comfortable doing at that point in time. And so I thought to myself, okay, I need to college is a blank canvas and I need to get over the the fact that I'm I, I still am introverted. But at that point in time, I was both introverted and shy. And that's, you know, the shy factor in particular was something that I really held me back. The very first thing that I did in college was I decided to run for student government. And I ran for student government because I felt like, okay, if I'm shy, the best thing to do is to go knock on door to door of my classmates and force myself to introduce myself. It kind of gave me an excuse to make me introduce myself to people. And, you know, I actually met a lot of close friends by going and knocking on these doors and everything like that. Ended up getting, you know, So were you to, going around, yeah. like, knocking on people's doors? Was that because you wanted to get enough votes? Well, it was a requirement of student government, but for me it was mainly because it was really difficult for me to talk to people because I was very shy and very difficult for me to meet people. And this provided me an excuse to introduce myself to meet people because Mm -hmm. I knew at that point, I, from what I had seen, and I remember going back to this high school business program that I did, I remember there was this very, um, very extroverted, well, I thought extroverted professor Um, Mm -hmm. And I remember very distinctly him kind of like asking the classroom, like how many people would describe me as like extroverted and pretty much everybody in the classroom felt that he was. And then he was kind of like, no, I'm actually very introverted. But and then he kind of walked through how he has how it's been important for him to learn how to um, still meet people, still be very sociable, still be extroverted Mm -hmm. when he needs to be. And that was something that just resonated with me, like, okay, I'm going to have to learn this skill that this person learned. Um, And for me, student government was an opportunity to um, do that. It's, you know, going back to your question of core values, it's, you know, so I'd say childhood was kind of 
you know, a core value of mine was make sure that you're having fun regardless of what your circumstances are. Then I kind of get mm -hmm. to boarding school at age 11 and the core value is like, you know, work hard and focus on the aspects of your life that you can change. Then I get to high school and a core value becomes it's fun to invest in yourself and grow as a person. Then I get to college and I get these core values of it's important to step outside of your comfort zone. And also on top of that, leadership can be a way of meeting people in a format that's very comfortable. So it's kind of there are these core values that that I feel like I gained and learned over time. And then mm -hmm. once I learn one, I it sticks with me, but then I move into a new phase of life and I'm learning other things. And so I, that's why you know, I think it, it's been just a process of kind of continually getting um, better uh more well-rounded as i've grown i love it i love it and it seems like as you kept growing you also try to kind of find ways to give back and i would like to kind of do a fast forward in your life and talk about that time when you were uh, at hbs harvard business school and you created a course called crafting your life i really love the title and i wanted you to kind of uh touch upon that and tell us more about it mm -hmm. So the course uh, is was kind of co-created by myself and then 16 other students along with Professor Leslie Perlow at, at Harvard Business School. And in addition to being a leadership and organizational behavior professor, she is also HBS's uh, head of research. And mm -hmm. she wrote this case, which every single first year MBA at Harvard took, which profiled different alumni and how their lives have unfolded after graduating from HBS. And then after she taught that course, she had two different sections. Each section is 93. So she had roughly kind of 186 students. Um, after she taught that course, she just realized not only that one given year, but this this case had been taught for many years. And there are always these questions that popped up from the students after this case in particular. It was a very memorable case in a very memorable class. And she realized that there must be something about this case that means, hey, there's not enough of discussion within the classroom around these life-related topics. So that's what led her to say, hey, you know, maybe we should do something in this in this regard. And so she ended up kind of, you know, building this team of 17 students that worked on it over the course of of the year. And then at the end of this whole experience, um, she ended up or at the end of the because it was a year long independent project. And then at the end of the year long independent project, you know, I was having a good experience with it. So she asked me if I wanted to actually be, a, you know, kind of a research associate for her, um, which I ended up doing for about four months. And my mm -hmm. role as a research associate was I, I interviewed uh, 120 different HBS alum. And each of these interviews would start out the same way and that would ask them how their life has transpired since graduating from HBS, highlighting the major personal and professional life transitions, what were the trade-offs that they made, and then in addition to these trade-offs, kind of how did they come to this decision? And so there were very these these very deep conversations that were focused on life that that honestly has been one of the trans most transformative experiences of my life conducting these interviews. Oh, wow. um, and it just made me realize a lot of things that I needed to be doing better in my own life. 
Um, and what I loved about these conversations is I think most conversations that we have um, tend to be very surface level. You don't really get to the core of what's on your mind and the other person is in the same exact way. And sometimes you have two people that would love to have a very deep and thoughtful conversation about X, Y, and Z topic, but neither of them get there because they don't, it, it's difficult to kind of break that ice. Um, what I loved about these interviews is that we started beyond the point of the ice being broken, if that makes sense, just because of the nature of the interview and what we were trying to co-create. And that I think was what led to these incredible conversations. And that's what the course is trying to do in many ways. It's trying to kind of like break you through your own barrier and force you to think and articulate and talk about what's really important to you. And, you know, the way I describe it is this course is really helping people find their purpose. And then once you feel like you have an understanding of your purpose, it helps you live with greater intentionality, which yeah. for me it was just so incredibly aligned you know it's funny because the course is called crafting your life but when i was doing these workshops in new york city i would often call them building the life you want so it was like more or less the same exact thing that i was already doing and i just happened to find a professor who was doing things and in, interested in doing things that more or less again i had been doing for years even before arriving at hbs um, what, but yeah, what would you say is like one uh, key thing that you took from those conversations? Like, what is, I guess, I guess there's no right answer, but what would you say is like a key thing to like crafting your life you want or building your life you want? Yeah, well, I think it's going to be different for every single person, right? But I think that the idea of the people that take this course is they figure out what that thing is for them. So in my case, I would say. Um, probably of the 120 interviews that I had, probably the most transformative interview that I had was with a guy who, really successful investor, but he mentioned his experience kind of going through a divorce. And specifically, he mentioned his experience um, really not being thoughtful around kind of how he decided to be with uh, his first wife, meaning the the, re the underlying reasons for why he decided to be in that relationship weren't particularly thoughtful. And as a successful investor, he's always prided himself on uh, being really thoughtful around that specifically. So, um, and then he started to ask me certain questions like, you know, okay, when you were deciding whether you wanted to work at BCG, Bain, or McKinsey, how much time did you think about that decision? And I spent a lot of time thinking about that decision, you know, and then he was like, okay, well, how much time have you spent thinking about who you would want to be your life partner? And I really, I really hadn't. I've never, you know, with the exception of kind of a relationship that I was in from kind of 2012 to 2015, I have never prioritized dating and relationships and, and everything like that. So at this point, it had been like five years since I had really, you know, thought and prioritized it. And it made me realize, like, he's right. The decision of life partner is going to have this huge impact on me. And I haven't up to this point spent a lot of time thinking about it. So let me start actually thinking about this more. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really changed the way, you know, so I, now I spend a lot of time thinking about it. I do make sure that I'm spending a lot of time between kind of thinking about it, going on dates, meeting people, putting myself out there. Um, 
And had I not had this conversation, I would not have, I would not be doing that right now. And so I think that's an example of how you, one of these conversations can really have a very big impact in terms of how you manage your time. And then the other thing is, I think that um, these conversations made me realize that uh, for the HBS alum that I had conversations with, I think the reality is, and in my case as well, at this point in my life, which is a fortunate statement to make, but at this point in my life, I think the professional success is more or less guaranteed. Personal success and personal happiness is very far from guaranteed. Now, to explain what I mean, I don't mean that that means that, you know, I'm going to be the CEO of a company or I'm going to be, uh, you know, a partner at BCG or some other prestigious firm. That That's not mm -hmm. what I mean by my success is guaranteed. What I mm -hmm. mean by my success is guaranteed is I'm going to have a good job. I'm not going to struggle for things financially. I'm going to be able to take care of myself and, and for my family. That's a that's a statement that I can make, you know, with a huge amount of, of confidence given the educational and the professional experiences that I've had up until this point. What is a huge question mark is everything on the personal side. Are you going to spend enough? Are you going to, you know, find the right person? Uh, mm. Are you going to mm. spend enough time with your family? Are you mm. going to, you know, have a good relationship with your children? These are the variables that are very much a question mark and are, and are like up to me to define. So what I realize is, you know what, I think that most people really do over index on that professional kind of yeah I, I was you know i am so 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 happy that you bring this up because yes like it is easy to like just have a tunnel vision on your professional career right like doing the things that you're supposed to do quote unquote having a good job and things like that but doing the personal side is something that a lot of people don't do and if you, I would love to really, really, really hear, especially from you, because when we take your life, you have everything on uh, on the paper, like a good education, a good job, a good background, and all that. And I'm so glad that you are the one who bring this uh, point up. So, like, I, I would love to hear, like, how do you take care of like your personal life? I think you prioritize it. So I think that you. You know, a really good example is I have a lot of friends who work in professional services type companies, um, you know, whether it's private equity, investment banking, consulting, where they're all the time they're working on the weekends. And I'm realizing when I have conversations with them, I'm realizing that nobody is telling them to work on on the weekends. And then these same people fast forward five years they leave the company because they've they've burned out. They're like, it's not sustainable. And my thing is like, well, rather than quitting the company, why don't you work the hours that you want to work and then see how that kind of, you know, how that ends up unfolding as opposed to just, I think people kind of assume that they have to work on, on the weekends. People try to differentiate themselves with the number of hours that they put in. My thought is if you're ever, if you're ever attempting to differentiate yourself based on the number of hours that you're putting in, you're setting yourself up for kind of an unsustainable, unhealthy kind of life. You should be differentiating yourself based on the value that you bring to your team, which is how I think 
senior people tend to differentiate themselves, right? A senior person is not, mm-hmm. for the most part, most of the senior and successful people I know aren't yeah. really viewing their X factor as the number of hours that they put in. They're viewing their X factors as like their relationships that they have or something like that. So I guess my approach is just, I I have these but things. What would you say yeah. to like kind of play devil's advocate on this side? What would you say to like, a, you know, first year analyst or anyone starting their career where you actually have your manager telling you, hey, you have to like work over time. Cause I have a friend, for example, we started, we both graduated last year yeah. and he started working in August and just last, uh, I, I think in November or something, he had a project and he was working crazy hours over time in the office on the weekend. And I was like, yo, this is crazy. Like, what are you doing? And he was telling me his manager wanted him because his manager yeah. would be sending emails on the weekend expecting, you know, reply. So I think from a senior level, as you mentioned, for them, it's easier to kind of focus on the human aspect, the relationships. Mm-hmm. But for someone starting, you know, when they listen, it's easy for them to tell you, hey, Tristan, you know, like I actually I'm not I don't want to do this, but they are making me do this. So what do yeah. you do in that case? Yeah, I mean, I think that look, if you want to put yourself through that temporarily, I am not opposed to that. I mean, when I was working in investment banking, I was working 100 hour weeks. There were days where I was literally sleeping at the office. So I'm not saying that at no point in my life um, did I not did I not kind of have that work ethic? Um, was I not putting in these ridiculous hours? I was. Mm-hmm. I did that very early on in my career. Uh, and then I was done with that. And and I limited it to a few years, right? Like, and, and yeah. really in my case, you know, one or two years of doing these kind of crazy, crazy, crazy hours. And then I was done. And then mm-hmm. at that point when I was done, I, I was done. I've never kind of re-entered that thing, nor will I ever. My view in terms of the professional success is guaranteed. There's no way I would do that at this point. Like there's just no way that I would do that. And what I think is, I think, again, it's fine to do that for one or two years, being really focused on why you're doing that for one or two years and when you're going to stop doing that. Because if you don't stop doing that, then you begin to define yourself um, through this lens of like working incredibly hard. And that's where you run the risk of like, you're going to have this very successful professional life, but your personal relationships are going to be terrible. Because at the end of the day, like the relationships that matter the most to me the people don't care that I'm a like a consultant at BCG. The people don't care that I'm doing investment banking at Morgan Stanley. The people care that like I'm a kind person to them and they enjoy being around me. Like that's why they're there for me. So for everybody that is over indexing on the professional stuff, realize that like that takes a toll on your relationships because they don't care about that prestigious transaction that you just closed. They care that you're spending time with them and that you're a good person to them. And no amount of professional prestige is going to make up for the fact that you don't give the people who are important to you that you're not spending time with them. So I think that it's like a trade-off that you have to, that you're balancing. And there's this book called The 100-Year Life, which is all about how, you know, 
the average eight-year-old in a developed economy today has a 50% chance of living to the age of 105. Um, and that changes the way that we need to think about lives. And there's this whole notion in this book around kind of relationships and balancing relationships with work and how, you know, you go through periods of your life where you're invested in work and that comes at the expense of relationships. And then you need to go through periods of life where you're invested in relationships and that will come at the expense of work because you can't, you know, you can't just do both. You can't just think that you're going to put your head down and work tirelessly and that that's not going to take a toll on your relationships. It's not realistic. Um, so are what you I would, saying that there is no compromise between the two? There's no way to like work and maintain your relationship? No, I'm saying that there's, I'm saying you have to prioritize one and, and prioritization okay. is a spectrum. That doesn't mean you have all one and all the other, but I'm hmm. saying you can't say, okay, my goal is to prioritize i'm going to be the number one analyst at my company and i'm going to put in more hours than anybody else and even though i'm working 120 that that's what i'm saying you can't say okay. i'm going to okay. i'm going to allocate 120 hours to work and i'm going to be really thoughtful about my relationships like that's not you okay. everybody has 168 hours per week and i think yeah. that people who are doing these jobs are kind of like okay I'm going to allocate a hundred hours towards work and then I'm still going to have these good relationships. And that's, that's, what's not possible. Right? You can't, okay. From yeah. my perspective, you can't be working 110, 120 hours a week and still have good relationships with people outside of work. And still have like being healthy too. Cause like you need to allocate time for like your, you know, yourself too. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yep. Now, one thing I would like to hear is, so as we mentioned, you're in Singapore now and I'm sure you have a lot of goals coming out for the future, but first I want to hear, you know, what is next for you in like the next year or the next five years? Yeah. Um, so I would say, um, long-term I have these goals that I am really interested in being a professor long-term specifically within leadership in the organizational behavior space. Um, I'm really interested in executive coaching um, BCG has a coaching practice, so maybe that means uh, if I can build a portfolio of work and do coaching within business, maybe that means kind of staying within BCG. If I don't feel like I'm able to build a, a portfolio that gives me the right amount of coaching, then I look into opportunities to do that elsewhere. But I think at the moment, I am loving things at BCG. I feel like I'm learning a lot. I'm, I'm working with really quality people. I'm working on interesting projects. So at the moment, I'm very kind of happy where I am professionally. So I'd say that more of it is these long-term things that I'm thinking about. How am I setting myself up to be a professor one day? How am I increasing the amount of coaching that, I, that I'm doing? Um, I'm bringing that speaker series that I was doing in New York. I'm bringing that to Singapore. So I've, oh, already, wow. done, so I've already done a few events here in Singapore. And I'm talking to some other schools and organizations and trying to get that off the ground. I'm doing a lot of conference calls. So for people who are interested in applying to Harvard Business School or people who are interested in consulting or BCG, um, I, I do a, cons a conference call for both of those topics pretty much every single month. And anybody who's interested can kind of just go on my website and can, can sign up for these conference calls. So I, I do those and I do the co any sort of coaching thing that I can do on the side. And I'm sort of trying to position myself for the long term 
And that's what I would say I'm doing on the professional front, on the personal front. You know, I see Singapore being a place where I'm really want to stay for a long time. Uh, if not kind of, you know, I'm viewing this as a permanent move from my perspective and mm-hmm. I, I love it here, but part of that means building a community. I had such a good community back in the States. Um, mm-hmm. And I need to replicate that community here in Singapore. And I've already, I think, even though I'm seven months in, I've already met an abundance of amazing people here in Singapore. So there's no shortage from that perspective. Um, mm-hmm. But what I haven't yet had happen is in Singapore, I have a whole bunch of like one-off friends, meaning I'm really close with person A, I'm really close with person B, I'm really close with person C, but person mm-hmm. A and B don't know each other, B and C don't know each mm-hmm. other and so forth. And from my yeah. perspective, that's what is the difference between close friendships and a, and a strong community. Yeah. Um, so now I'm in the process of, okay, well, how do I get person A and B to meet each other? How do I get person B and C to meet each other? How do I get all of these yeah. people to meet each other? Cause then I think I'll have a community and that, that yeah. is, that is what I think will take a place that I'm like, you know, on paper and in my gut, I love this place, but you know, I really need it to feel like home. And I think it'll feel like home once I have community and community is something that, that takes effort and energy to build. So I'd say that, um, you know, on the personal side, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about building you know, community. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about dating and, and, and trying to find somebody that is you know, the right life partner that I'm excited about. Um, so I would say that that's kind of what the next 5, 10, 15 years look like for me. Um, I love it. You know, when I talk about it, I get really excited by it um, because, yeah, I'm going to be working hard, but there's going to be plenty of time going back to that initial core value of childhood. There's going to be plenty of time for, for fun. One last question I have for you is, uh, so when you're 80 years old and you look back at the life of Sri and Francis, what will make you say that your life was a success? Like one thing. Yeah. Uh, I would say, you know, he helped a lot of people and he had a lot of fun. I think it's that simple. So um, I know that's two things, um, but I, I think that if all I could say is that I had a lot of fun, I probably wouldn't be happy with that. Um, if I could say I had a lot of fun and I helped a lot of people, that's it. I'd be I'd be happy. Now, obviously, there's like specifics that boil down into each of those, but um, you know, fun, if I'm having fun and helping people, then things are good from my perspective. I love it. I love it. I mean, you know, uh, I want to thank you for everything that you do for every for the communities, for our community, you know, minorities, and also for the type of work you're doing, helping people get to where they want to be. Because I think, you know, the, the, the best thing we can do is really use our life as a service to others. And this was my pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Yeah, and if you. anyone from the audience wants to reach out to you i know you mentioned you have a website but and i will make sure to add that to the notes of the show but if anyone wants to reach out to you what is the best way to contact you the best way is on linkedin i respond to messages on linkedin very regularly usually within kind of um 24 hours almost certainly within a week um so that's the best way just uh you know, send me an invite to connect on LinkedIn and include in it just so that I have some context, include on it in it that they met me kind of through this podcast. So don't just like send an invitation to connect with no context in there. Click there's the little button that says add a note, click the add a note button and just put something 
as simple as like, you know, had a chance to listen to you through this podcast, um, just because it gives me context, uh, which is, which is helpful. Um, but yeah, if people reach out to me through that, um, that's the best way to get in touch. Okay. And I will make sure to add that. Thank you again, Tristan. Yep. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. If you have a question about a previous episode or if you would like to share something positive, I would really, really love to hear from you. So you can go to speakpipe.com slash T-P-O-G-I. That is S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash T-P-O-G-I. You can find more about the show at thepowerofgoodintentions.podbean.com or on Instagram on my page, Billionaires Mind Club. Thank you very much.